University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Sometimes uh, I come across a video that so perfectly illustrates the direction of where a conversation should go and gives the perfect context to help us understand the scripture passage we'll be reading this morning. So we're going to watch a video here in just a second, and I'm going to warn you, this is very serious. So it'd be totally inappropriate to laugh as we watch it together. That's right. We might need to restart it, but this time we'll have the audio. (laughs) Today's reading comes from the book of Proverbs. If I may digress for a moment from my prepared message, I mean it when I say to you, You guys! Sometimes you're bad! Don't be jerks! You're supposed to be good! I'm in my office every day, and somebody comes in, and they're like, Hey, whoops! I don't! Dan, what is your deal? If anybody doesn't know, Dan is the worst. I took a vow to not say who was the worst, but it's Dan. You guys are making me look bad in front of God. What's that? Oh, look, it's Jesus. And he said, stop it! The word of the Lord. So if you want to understand where Paul is coming from in our text this morning, that is it. Paul writes to the church in Corinth to face some really difficult times. From raising a stink over the collection of money to the ministry in Jerusalem to defending his role within the church to those of the original disciples... All this makes us commiserate with the old apostle to know that Tylenol wasn't invented until 1955. So what does Paul have to say to this church about the conflict they're facing? It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. So I made up my mind that I would not make any other painful visit to you. For I grieve you, who is left to make me glad, but to whom I have grieved. I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made rejoice. I have confidence in all of you that you would share in my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of the heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. This month is No Shave November. Uh, It's an excuse for 
men to grow unruly facial hair uh, to raise awareness for cancer. I've personally been an advocate for No Shave November for the fact that I haven't cleanly shaved my face in six years. But at first glance, a, bear, a beard might seem uh, like an unremarkable thing. It's just a, just a bit of protein, really. Um, some can grow a, a really sweet-looking beard, while others can just grow that really creepy-looking mustache. And then you've got that guy that has the really weird patches all over his face where you just want to say, just stop trying, just don't do it. Did you know in the last couple of years, there has been a church that split over a pastor's beard? I know, really important stuff, right? You see, what it came down to is the church was embroiled within this argument over the length of the worship pastor's beard, some wanting him to live up to the Hebrew laws that require a certain length of the beard, while others wanted to live into the freedom of the law. The real argument should be whether or not this guy was actually able to grow that mustache or if it was that really gross-looking stuff that middle school boys get when you just want to say to them, just go ahead and shave. You don't look like an adult. Albert Einstein wrote, there is a quantum leap technology in our age, but unless there is another quantum leap into human relations, unless we learn to live in a new way towards one another, there will be catastrophe. It seems like such a funny conflict for us to think about, that a church should split over a pastor's facial hair. Yet churches face conflict every single day, from music and worship style, to the volume of music in the worship, from the proper attire for worship to the pastor's salary, from the baptism practices to the theology of differences that we have among us, from the pastor's use of his time to the pastor's spouse, from the causation of church decline to the church's budget. The church is constantly entangled in conflict. Conflict will inevitably happen between human beings because we are, in fact, human beings, (laughs) We live and we breathe and we disagree on so many different things, yet the church has seemed to be embroiled in conflict since day one. You can just hear the pain of Paul's words as he writes this. He uses the words pain and grief and distress and anguish to describe how he is feeling. What it comes to see is that we must understand that conflict is inevitable within the church because conflict is inevitable within our lives. And we are, in fact, a people who make up the body of Christ. To be human is to think, to form an opinion, to live into our convictions. And with a diversity of people within a faith community like the church, conflict is going to be the product of our differences of opinions and journey experiences. And if there is not conflict within a church, then we must begin to wonder a couple things. Number one, are people living into their convictions And number two is there's some dictatorial leadership running the church. So someone once said that 10% of conflicts are due to differences of opinion and 90% are due to the tone of voice by which we express them. Conflict is inevitable within the church. And the church, if conflict is inevitable, how we handle conflict is an undecidable variable. Conflict is really easy when you come to think about it. But you know the funny thing about conflict is we choose to do things that make life a living hell on earth. Think of how easy conflict is within our life. It's easy to get annoyed with people who have habits that get under your skin. It's easy to get frustrated with people who don't understand who you are and what you're trying to do. It's easy to get angry with someone who says something you don't like and someone that's against you. It's easy to hold grudges. It's easy to resent people. 
It's easy to let conflict go unsettled. And so conflict is so easy, yet it makes our life hell on earth. And so Paul goes on to write this in chapter 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that you will not be overwhelmed with excess of sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. For another reason, I wrote to you as to see if you would stand the test and be obedient to everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for Christ's sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not aware, we are not aware of his schemes." Did you know that the church in America has recently engaged in conflict over uh, a couple of these issues? Whether the church can and should use cran grape juice instead of grape juice during communion, whether the church should have black, tan, or brown filing cabinets in the office. I heard of a church that ended up splitting because one church member hid the vacuum from the rest of the building and grounds committee. <laughs> that's, that's legit. We forget to throw into these arguments the fake plants versus the real plants, the color of the carpet in the sanctuary, the type of coffee served on Sunday morning, whether drinks should be taken anywhere outside of the fellowship hall, and if the pastoral staff should wear robes during worship. One church even fought over which painting of Jesus they should put in the narthex, because nothing says the love of Jesus like arguing over some faux image we have of him. You see, Paul writes to this church who's embroiled in conflict, and what he calls them to is to reconciliation. There's two key words he uses here. The first is the Greek word keromize, which means to forgive, to pardon, to cancel. It's the same word used in the Greek referring to a criminal being pardoned or being exonerated. And the second word he uses here is parakaleo, which means to comfort, to console, to draw near, and so he's calling them not to just pardon and forgive each other, but to draw each other close to one another. Adding in verse 8, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. As we hear these words of forgiveness and reconciliation, we're probably all thinking, easier said than done. Because just as easy as it is in getting in conflict with each other, reconciliation is really, really tough. Because what it calls us to is humility and mercy and compassion and grace that's necessary for reconciliation. And when you think about the actual idea of having to talk to someone who's wronged you or you have wronged them, it is really, really difficult. And we know that Paul is not merely just saying these words. He's trying to echo the words of Jesus who told us to forgive others who have wronged us because God has forgiven us. Reconciliation is tough. And let's be honest, it stinks. It stinks to think about all the different ways that people have hurt us, all the different ways that people have stabbed us in the back, all the ways that people have manipulated and controlled and done something to cause harm to ourselves, to our friends, to our family, to our community. Can I get an amen that reconciliation really stinks? Oh, good Lord, I wouldn't expect that. <laughs> 
When someone has hurt us, there are endless emotions that well up inside us. There is a a great cocktail of of anger and resentment and bitterness and revenge and loathing all mixed together, ready to explode in a Molotov cocktail. It burns within us. And so the question as we encountered this is not really a question. It's a statement back to Paul. How dare you ask me to seek reconciliation? How dare you forgive me, ask me to forgive someone else? Yesterday, while Jennifer and I were working um, around the house in some projects, the house was filled with the bickering of two little girls. That's right. Uh, My two sweet little girls were embroiled in a situation of dissimilarity. I know, pastor's kids, you can imagine. Once both sides were heard, we set the matter straight, apologies were exchanged, and we all went back to what we were doing. Except maybe 30 seconds later, the shrill sound that can only come out of the voice of a small little girl filled our house yet again. Sides were heard, the matter was straightened, apologies were exchanged, and we all went back to what we were doing. And then you can imagine what happened next after about 30 seconds. My point is this. It's so easy for us to simply say we can forgive someone, but what's so difficult is to do it day after day after day. It's easy to reconcile once, but it's difficult to choose a life of reconciliation. Proverbs 26.11 says this. This will make you hungry for lunch. As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. We know that Christ has called us to forgive. We know the bitter and disgusting taste of conflict and grudges, yet how often do we turn to our vomit again and again and again? Instead of choosing a life of of freedom and forgiveness and reconciliation, we rather choose a life of unresolved conflict and hurt and grudges and hatred and anger and discord. And we think we have won. We think we have written people off. We think we have told people exactly what they need to hear. But what we don't realize is we are becoming slaves to the very grudges we hold in our lives. We become subject to all of that hatred, all of that anger, all of that resentment, all of that control, all of those grudges well up within us and bind our arms and our hands and our feet from moving forward in life. And each time we we choose to not let it go, each time we choose not to forgive, each time we choose to hold a grudge and to leave a friendship or run from one church to another church because it's so much easier to run away from conflict, what we don't realize is grudge and hatred and disdain has enslaved us. Yet Jesus is inviting us to release us from that prison and to never return to it again. In September, the world celebrated 73 years since the end of World War II. And some in this space, you experienced it firsthand. For others of us, we experienced it through your stories or through images that have left an indelible mark on our lives in the world. And the most horrific images that come to mind are that of the Holocaust. There's two little girls that come to mind. Ava Kaur and her sister Miriam were born on January the 30th, 1934, in northern Transylvania, Romania. And at the age of 10, in 1944, the Nazis transported her immediate family to Auschwitz. And since Ava and her sister were twins, Dr. Mingle, one of the Nazis' leading scientific experimenters, selected the two girls because they wanted to do experiments on them of the most horrific type to see if two different twins would respond in the same way as if it was different from a normal human being. 
So often the girls were stripped down naked. They were done unspeakable things. On January the 27th, 1945, four days after the girls' birthday, the Soviets liberated Auschwitz in the concentration camp and freed them from this unspeakable horror. 1.1 million Jews were killed in Auschwitz alone. And on January the 27th, 1995, 50 years after the liberation of Auschwitz, two years after her sister had died, Ava stood at the ruins of the gas chamber that took her parents' life. And there she declared this, What I discovered for myself was life-changing. I discovered that I had a power to forgive. No one could give me that power, and no one could take it away. It was mine to use it, and it was mine to use it as I wished. And if I forgive Dr. Mingle, the worst of them, I might as well forgive everyone who even hurt me. She goes on to say, I am no longer gripped by hate. I am finally free. Forgiveness is not so much the perpetrator, for the perpetrator, but for the victim. Forgiveness is really nothing more than an act of self-healing and self-empowerment. I call it a, a miracle medicine. It is free, it works, and has no side effects. Marvelous story, Andy. Thank you for setting the bar so high on reconciliation that we should just be able to run under it. I read this story, and it reminds me of just how petty often the conflict is in my life. How the things that become big things are really small things. And so where do we begin with all this? How do we set something new within our life? When I was growing up, it was the introduction of this thing where we weren't supposed to throw everything away, but we could do something called recycling. You remember reduce, reuse, recycle? You know, we're supposed to do that. The fact is that we throw away, uh, 60% of what's thrown away every single day could go into recycling, but we throw it into a trash can. And despite the fact that for 20 years this has been around and yet we're not really making a mark on it, yet it's so easy to consider. Reduce, reuse, recycle. You see, this idea of reconciliation in our life is not an invitation to just try it once and then to move on. What Christ is inviting us into is to create a new cycle within our life. A new cycle by following Christ. And Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting people's sins against them and has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Let this sink in. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. What Paul is writing here, in short, is this. We are called to set a new cycle, to become a new creation. And this new cycle begins when we embrace God's reconciliation within our lives. We can't even begin to think about managing conflict and forgiving others and living a new path of life unless we truly embrace God's forgiveness within us. Paul doesn't expect the Corinthians, or for us for that matter, to forgive by our own accord. Paul's not an idiot. He knows it's easy for us to step into conflict 
It's so difficult to step into reconciliation. And so Paul is not pointing us to look inward, but Paul is calling us to look to God. Stepping out of the cycle of conflict and anger and grudges must be met by stepping into a new cycle with Christ. We live in this constant cycle. We do something wrong against the God that created us and against God, he gets God's creation and God forgives us anyways. We struggle within this conflict. God forgives us anyways. We choose every single time and yet God forgives us anyways. And when it happens again, we receive the forgiveness and restoration of God again and again and again. The second thing I would say to us this morning is that we need to learn to confront the issue. It's become so easy in our life to write people off, to walk away from friendships, to leave churches, all because of conflict that we are not willing to resolve for one another. So it's time that we actually confront the issue. And if I hadn't been babbling so long, I would go into detail there with all that. Talk to me afterwards. I'll let you read the notes. And the third thing I want us to see this morning is this. We need to find peace and reconciliation. The goal of reconciliation is to not make the other person feel wrong or bad or a good-for-nothing low life that their mother disowned them for who they are. Instead, the goal of reconciliation is to forgive, to have mercy, to have restoration and peace. A small side note for us to realize is that this cycle sometimes takes years. Bullying and abuse and infidelity can top the list of things that nobody is expecting you to have a change of heart overnight. Yet Christ has called us to reconcile. And as you step into this new cycle with God, do not forget that this cycle of embracing and confronting and coming to peace must repeat day after day after day. Remember, conflict is inevitable but it's how we respond to conflict that makes the difference in our life. As conflicts arise, as hurt and pain ensue, may the God of power and grace and mercy remind us that it's not easy, but it's possible through the God who forgives us again and again and again. Reconciliation is an act of mercy and accountability and humility. Simply put, reconciliation is making the gospel come to life in our lives. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, man must evolve for all human conflict, a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. As we go into a time